Let's open uh, God's Word today and let God speak to our hearts. Are you ready to receive God's Word today? If you are ready, say so this way. Say, Lord God, I want you to speak to me today and help me be obedient. In Jesus' name. Revelation chapter 3, just two verses. These verses, uh, first time I, uh, they impacted me was in 1968. I was in the university. Um, I was a sophomore in Beirut, Lebanon. I was born raised in Lebanon, by the way. Many people ask me, where are you from? Well, I'm from Lebanon. Born and raised in the city of Tripoli, a Muslim city, which is known to be a stronghold of Islam. And the church where I came to Christ, I visited two months ago. I was there in March. And uh, I was shocked to see on the road outside the entrance of the church, the flag of ISIS right in the middle of a roundabout flying up in the air above the church to intimidate the church. And um, there have been persecution there too. How many of you came to church today fearful that someone might find out that you're going to church and they're going to report you to the police and you might end up in jail? How many of you felt that today? Well, there are millions of Christians who don't have that kind of freedom that you have here. Let us pray for the persecuted church around the world, not only in the Muslim world, but even in the communist world, including China. I was in Hong Kong in March also, and heard the BBC uh, report on the church in China. It was during Easter. I was there Easter week, actually. And uh, it said the government broke 2,000 uh, crosses from 2,000 churches. They did not want the cross to invite others to come to the church. But still, they said, more than 100 million Chinese celebrated Easter this year. That's not bad. When I went to China after Hong Kong, I was told by Chinese pastors that there may be well over 400 million Christians in China today. That makes it the largest Christian nation on earth. China! Hallelujah. God is at work. Yes, yes, you can, you can do that. And uh, I saw the vibrance of the churches in China, in Hong Kong, and we established the Horizons chapter there just last March. We've been trying for a year. We finally got the approval of the government. Now we're sending missionaries from China to uh, Asia. Let's read from Revelation chapter 3. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. This verse tells us that God is sovereign. He opens and he closes. But the next verse tells us what God is really about. He's not about closing doors, because if he closes a door, it's because he wants to open another. And so we go on and read in verse 8. I know your deeds. See, what does see mean? 
means open your eyes. Right? Are your eyes open today? I'm not talking about your physical eyes. We're talking about the spiritual eyes. The eyes in the head here might see a door that is closed. But God is calling us today through these words to open our eyes of heart and faith. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Thank you, Lord, for this word. I pray that you speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Brother Andrew, who uh, started Open Doors Ministry into the Iron Curtain, which was the closed doors of the Soviet Union, came to my university in 1968, and he spoke about the open doors behind the closed doors. And that has impacted me so much that it has influenced many of my actions and decisions over the 45 years of ministry among Muslims. One of them is when I was invited to go to Kosovo, a Muslim Albanian population of two and a half million who have had very little Christian work. 98% Muslim, a few Catholics and other Christians, and the evangelicals did not uh, number more than 20. In fact, I only met nine of them. So I said, Lord, I'm going to go because I love to go to the unreached areas of the world to tell them about Jesus. So I called the uh, Yugoslav embassy before uh, Kosovo became a nation just a few years ago. And the guy cussed me and said, I'm not going to go give visas to Americans. You are bombing us and you're hurting us and you want to come and tour our country. No, and he hung up on me. So that, from the eyes of man, is a closed door. So what do you do when you have eyes of faith that God called you to go to that nation? Well, I bought my ticket. And there was no airport in that area, so I had to go to, to Bulgaria and take a bus to Macedonia and another bus to the borders, try to get into the country that way not through the airport. <clears throat> Between the time I bought my ticket and I arrived at the border, I had no less than 20 discouragements that would have told me, don't go. And one of them was so severe that one person in Skopje, Macedonia, told me, don't you attempt to go to the border because yesterday, two Americans were robbed of everything they had and stripped naked, and they threw them outside the borders. And I said, do I want that happen to me? When I asked that question, Jesus answered, look at me on the cross, naked and ashamed, or being shamed. And uh, the verse from Philippians 3.10 came to mind. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that we may attain the resurrection. I said, yes, I'm willing to be robbed and stripped naked because God called me to go in. Another no was that I met an American on the bus 
who said to me, I tried to get a transit visa to drive a truck through Kosovo, and because of my American passport, they said no. So I had 20 different no, 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 no. But God kept saying yes, 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 yes. And when I got to the border, it was very difficult. Spent several hours. By that time, I had been on the road 40 hours from Denver to the borders. And the borders was chaotic. It was a war zone. Cars and buses and trucks were intermingled like spaghetti on the borders. So I had to walk three miles, five kilometers to the border because everything was standstill. By that time, it was afternoon, and I went to the four kiosks of the police, handed them my passport. They refused to take it. They spoke some gibberish in Serbian language I don't understand, and they said, go, 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 go. So I went from one to the other to the other to the other, and um, it's a no. So I sat on a bench, and I put my head behind, between my hands, and I said, Lord God, am I stupid to do this? Everybody tells me you cannot do it. Are you calling me, or am I being prideful about it, and I want to be a hero? What is this all about? While I was praying, three soldiers came, one on each side and one in the back with guns, and they pushed me into an office, and I said, now the stripping naked is coming. And so I got into this office, a big office with a man who looked very angry. He was the chief of police. And he spoke English. All the others did not speak English. And he said to me, why are you insisting to go to Kosovo? I said, I'm here to preach the gospel. I want to convert Muslims to Christianity. Well, I had not planned those words. I did not think about it. I'd never said them to anybody on the border before. But remember Jesus saying, if you stand before the authorities, don't worry what you say. The Holy Spirit will give you the right words. And so God knew who that guy was. He was an Orthodox Christian who hated Muslims, were fighting them, who wanted to be independent of Serbia, the Serb, Serbian Orthodox. And when I said, I want to convert Muslims, he said, that's wonderful. Give me your passport. So I handed him my passport. He stamped it himself. That was in 1994, May 1994. I was in Kosovo again just two months ago in April, holding a conference for 200 pastors. How did that happen? when there were less than 20 believers, not even one pastor ordained in 1994. The church started growing, multiplying from a few people. I worked with six people at that time, supported three of them with little money, rented a small shack, literally a shack without a window that had the door so you can come in, two couches, and we started from there then we started renting a one-bedroom and two-bedroom. Now we have a building, and a building rented, and we're trying to build. We bought a property trying to build. In 22 years, more than 15,000 Muslims have become Christians, are now in 40 churches. <clears throat> when, when God opens the door, no one can shut. 
But you just have to have the eyes of faith to go to that door that looks closed and push it. And God will give you the strength and he will open it for you. Another thing is when, uh, when uh, I wanted to translate the Bible into Arabic, I was, uh, I was not a Bible scholar. I had just finished college when someone said, would you help us translate the Bible into many languages of the Middle East? And my job was to travel to North Africa and the Arab regions, 22 countries. I went to all of them looking for people groups who don't have a Bible in their language. I discovered the Kurdish people. At the time, there were 20 million Kurds between Iraq, Iran, and Turkey, and, and Azerbaijan, and Syria. Five countries with 20 million people without a Bible in their language. What happened to the Bible societies? That was in 1973. So I began a translation project. It was very difficult. Open Doors, Brother Andrew wrote the book, God Smuggler. He was smuggling Bibles into the Iron Curtain. I smuggled myself into Kurdistan. No foreigner was allowed to enter Iraqi Kurdistan because they don't want anybody to know what Saddam Hussein and previous presidents of Iraq were doing with the Kurds. I went in there. I got on a bus, did not know Kurdish language, and uh, pretended to be sleeping for five hours taking the bus into there. And so that they don't see my green eyes, I would just go like this, and police would go looking for foreigners on the bus. They couldn't find me. Anyway, that's one way. But I was doing this four times a year, getting into Kurdistan to get the Bible printed. And now there was not one believer in 1973 known in Kurdish uh, Iraq. Now we have tens of thousands of Kurdish believers. The whole Bible exists in the Kurdish language. When the Bible became available, Muslims started knowing about Jesus and they're flocking into his sheep pen. Hallelujah. Another story from Kabylia, North Africa. In 1974, I went into Algeria and uh, was looking for believers there. And somebody who knows the Kabyle language, there were hardly any Kabyle believers at the time. And I found a British woman, a missionary, Daisy Marsh, whose father had spent 50 years reaching uh, Kabylie people. Kabylia is the Berbers of North Africa. And I, w I visited them in Morocco, Tunisia, and also now in Algeria. That was in June 1974. There were less than 20 believers in the whole country, Muslim converts. 40 years later, two years ago, 2014, I was there. And there are over 100,000 Muslims who have come to Christ because the Bible became available to them. Can you give a hand to the Lord for that? <clears throat> the Arabic Bible had existed in the middle of the 19th century, 1865. There was a, the King James was translated into Arabic, called the Van Dyke Translation. And I was 
commissioned to lead an Arabic translation project along with the other languages. And um, the Bible was available, but very limited distribution to the churches. Bible Society had eight um, shops all over the Arab world in 22 countries, and I went and visited them all, and the distribution was very limited. I uh, did some research for the last 10 years before 1974, less than 0.002% of the population had a Bible. That's nil, basically not much. And so I was determined in my heart and faith to make the Bible available massively in the millions of copies. But I had faced a lot of opposition. Opposition, I cannot explain all of it, and um, including Christians who were afraid if we were to print the Bible in Egypt and have it in the secular market, it could cause trouble and persecution for the church. Couldn't find pastors willing to associate with me. And, uh, and even missionaries were not, most of them were not interested in this project. One day in my devotions on a Thursday morning in Cairo, in my uh, home office, I came to worship the Lord and have private time with Him, called quiet time. And I was reading from Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58 spoke so strongly to me that it changed the course of my history. It says, raise your voice like a trumpet. Do not hold back. The whole chapter spoke to me, but I don't have time to tell you all the lessons. But do not hold back was the voice of God telling me, go ahead and do it. And uh, the Lord uh, made it happen. The first printing of this New Testament in a different format Thank you, Randy, for this beautiful design. We called it the Book of Life. Why? Because I wanted the um, censorship to pass it, not as a Bible, but as a book. And I counted on the laziness of the Egyptian people, not all of them, but those in government offices, and it passed. They did not notice it was a Bible at first. Kitab al-Hayat, Book of Life. Printed 7,000 copies. They sold in the public's um, book fair in one week. Then we printed 10,000 copies and 50,000 more and 100,000. In one year, 120,000 New Testaments were distributed in the public square, in the bookshops. Amen. And today, uh, as I stand here before you, more than 30 million copies have been distributed and millions of downloads from the internet and people are coming to Christ because they're reading the Bible. In 1985, I was in France at a conference of all the missionaries working in the Middle East. 30 mission agencies got together in Valence, France. They said, what shall we do? There are four translations competing with each other. Let's choose one of them. And this translation was chosen. And one of the people there said, how are we going to penetrate North Africa with the gospel? And he came up with this idea. He said, why don't we print one little gospel 
so thin that it can go in an envelope and you would not know it's a book. So the Skinny Luke project was launched. It was skinny, so skinny, onion paper, very thin. And it was put in envelopes and volunteers from around the world were writing addresses from phone books to Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia. That was 1985. 100,000 copies were mailed into North Africa, and they passed inspection. Well, I was uh, in Lebanon one day, and the seminary called me and said, we have a seminary student who came a week early, and the dorm isn't open yet. Could you host him in your house? His name is Kamal from Tunisia. So he came to my house for a week. The first night, I said, tell me your testimony. He says, I was sitting at home one day, and the postman said, I have some mail for you. And there was this little envelope sent from some country, and he opened it. There was Skinny Luke inside it. He did not know the name Skinny Luke. I told him. He said, that transformed my life. This brother is now a pastor in Tunis, and I was with him a few months ago. Another one of these stories of the power of God's Word coming through the mail system came uh, when I was in Morocco in 2009. I was introduced to a young woman, a Moroccan woman, 20 years old, by a British missionary who had been witnessing to her for four months. And at Christmas, she came to a Christmas party and she said, I really want to know more uh, about Jesus. So she asked a lot of questions. The British missionary knew limited Arabic and um, did not answer all of her questions. She brought her to me. I spent four hours sharing the gospel with her and answering her questions. After four hours, you could see her face lit up, and she was relieved because she had so many issues about the Trinity, Jesus, Son of God, God as Father, and many other things. And she was satisfied. Now, many Muslims you talk to are not satisfied. But this woman had been touched by the Spirit of God. And the last question she asked me, she says, I really want to accept Jesus, but I'm afraid. I said, what are you afraid for? She said, my mom told me since I was little, if I ever leave Islam, God will judge me and put me in hell. So I'm afraid of leaving Islam. Do you think if I accept Jesus, God will judge me and put me in hell? There was a brother, Fuad. We were meeting in his home. He's an evangelist, a Moroccan believer, a pastor leading a home fellowship. I said, Brother Fuad, do you think she'll go to hell if she accepts Jesus? He said, no way. You'll go straight to heaven. Because, and he opened the Bible and assured her of her salvation if she were to believe in Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. She got on her knees and received Christ, both in tears and in joy. And she started hopping up and down saying, I am free, I am free, hallelujah. How many people are like these two stories? How many people are searching and there's no one?
to tell them. Praise God, today God is penetrating even bedrooms of Muslims through dreams and visions. I did a study among 120 Muslim converts in the United States, a survey of 12 questions. And the last question, 12, says, what was the major factor that led you to Christ? And I'm going to share with you a couple of these. There are many, many factors, but one of them it said, 60% six, of, the, of the people said, a dream of Jesus or a vision. And I heard several of their stories when I asked them, because some of these were interviews, not just a survey on an, in the mail. Just I talked to them personally, asked them to fill out this form. There are so many dreams, and many of these dreams are found in the Bible. I'll tell you an example of one of them. He was sitting at a, at a lake, and he saw a man on the other side of the lake dressed in white. And the way he said it, he's from Sudan. He said his face lit like the sunshine. And that man waved to me, come, come. And I said, I can't swim. He said, walk on the water. So I began to walk on the water. When I got to the middle of the lake, I started drowning. And he flew to me and picked me up and took me to the shore. Who is this? I opened the Bible. I said, this is it. Peter walked on the water. And Jesus, who called Peter to walk on the water, called you to walk on the water so you can follow him. Now he's a believer in Jesus Christ from Sudan. Other dreams. The typical dream is a desert. People are walking in a desert. They see far away water and fruit and vegetables and something is holding them back. One guy who is now pastor of a church in Chicago from Lebanon, he saw a big river. It was a very deep river and he cannot swim. Many Arabs don't swim. And so... He was saying, I'm so hungry, I'm so thirsty, how did I get there? He couldn't get there. And Jesus came, picked him up, and took him to the other side. And walked away and said, follow me. Next morning he woke up. This guy was a PhD in Islamics. He was a, um, a journalist writing a column every day in an Islamic paper in Lebanon, news, newspaper. Nobody could ever tell him about Jesus. But Jesus himself told him about Jesus. And the next day he began to pursue. He started reading the Bible. He's been ostracized by his family. He's not, he doesn't dare go back to Lebanon. A couple of years ago he went back and they threatened to kill him. And he ran away from them. And hid for a whole month at a missionary's house. Um, because he had other reasons to be in Lebanon than visiting his family. God is visiting people all over the world with dreams and visions. And I can tell you hundreds of these stories. 60% said dream or vision, real vision. I'll tell you about a vision. One, one person said, I was in broad daylight. And, and this man dressed in white came to my living room. I was sitting in my living room. And he said to me, I want you to know something. God died for you. 
and he disappeared. She saw something, an invitation to a Christmas party, and I was pastoring an Arabic church in Denver. I still have that church, and she came to that Christmas party, and we had uh, some refreshments, and she came to eat, and um, I said, where are you from? She said, I'm from Iraq. Who told you about this church? Well, I read it in some pamphlet at a grocery store. I said, you're welcome. She said, I want to tell you something. God visited me in my living room in broad daylight and said that God died for me. What does that mean? How, this is strange. She had never heard those words before. So it was an Egyptian brother who had come to Christ, and I had trained him in ministry. I said, Muhammad, come over. He's an Egyptian fellow. And he came. I said, tell her about this vision. And he told her that Jesus is God incarnate who came on the cross. So these are some of the dreams and visions. The other question, 85% said it was the love and care of a Christian. Now that brings us to you. Who's a Christian here? Do you have love in your heart? Do you have compassion in your heart? Do you care that Muslims will be lost without you? Without you stepping outside your comfort zone of your regular lifestyle and doing something different, like today. One of my greatest joys after I speak at a church like this is that I get an email or a phone call. After I heard you, I went and met somebody in the, in the grocery store and I said hi to them and I began to a conversation and now we are there in our church. They tell me that later. And that is what I want to see. All of you do. What do you do when you see a Muslim? You don't know what to do with them. I train a lot of missionaries and uh, churches like this I speak. And many people say, what shall I do? I have a neighbor. What should I do? Is it okay to go knock on their door? Is it okay to give them a Bible? Yes, it's okay. More than okay. You must provide hospitality. Welcome them to this country. I know there's a lot of fear of Muslims. I know there's a lot of anger against Islam. And we can justify fear and anger. But what did God tell us to do? He said, love them, right? Love them? How do we love them? Nuking them? Loving them? Killing them? Destroying them? Or sharing the gospel with them? In the last five, six years through the Arab Spring, there has been a lot of refugees. You heard 19 and a half million refugees. There are 9 million of them are Syrians. They're going to Lebanon, 2 million. They're going to Turkey, over a million. They're spread inside Syria, also going to Europe, and they're coming to the U.S. and Canada, Australia, all over the world. Why is God shuffling all these nations around the world? Is there a purpose? Maybe they have a purpose to coming to destroy us and kill us, and some of them do. Most of them are just trying to escape a war 
They want to live a decent life. But the real purpose is explained in Acts 17 by Paul, who said, God created all men from one man named Adam, and he appointed the places where they may live so that they may seek him and find him, though he's not far from them. The reason there are Muslims in Grand Rapids here is because there's a church that's alive and well. It's called Calvary. And there are Christians. There's men and women here who know Jesus Christ. How many of you became Christians because someone shared the gospel with you? Raise your hand. So, there's a lesson right here. If 85% of Muslims have come to Christ because someone like you shared the gospel with them, why don't we do more of that? And not just with people of our own color and shape and, and uh, um, diet, um, certain kind of hamburger or something they eat, but they eat this strange smelling food, but they need Jesus. Let's reach out to them. We have a center in Beirut, Lebanon. Five years ago, we opened the center when the Syrians began to come to, to Lebanon. There were about 20 people in the first meeting, and then 30, and then 50, and then 100, and then it became so big that we could not accommodate them. The whole room that which we rented could take 100 chairs. So we broke the wall and opened it up to the courtyard. Courtyard is about half the size of this room here. And so we put a cover over the courtyard, and we have 500 people in chairs like this sitting. And that was on a Thursday night and a Saturday night. And it got so big that we had to ask them, come on Monday, a group of you come Monday, others Tuesday, others Wednesday, others Friday. We had six meetings every night. And it got so big that we had two meetings a day, three meetings a day. Now we have four or five meetings a day. 27 events every week. Two million Syrians coming into a country of four million people. Where do they go? They come to the Hope of the Nation Center. Many of them, not all of them. And they come with this question. How do I become a Christian? And we take them and we share the gospel with them. One of these nights I preached. We have preachers... We have 27 meetings. I can't preach 27 times a week, although I'd love to. But we have pastors, we have staff, we have about 100 people involved in this ministry. And one night I preached and I said, come forward if you want to receive Christ as your Savior. And that room of uh, where I begin to, I, I stand in the back of that room to preach. A hundred people can sit in it, and then the rest are outside in the courtyard with a screen. They watch from a video. So many people came, we had to empty the room of all the chairs. We had more than 50 or 60 people receive Christ in one meeting. Last Christmas, I celebrated... Christmas every day with a different group because we cannot accommodate them all. From these, 850 had accepted Christ and had never celebrated Christmas as Christians until this past Christmas. Glory to God.
for that. I have lots of stories about how these people are coming to Christ. 70% of them are women and children. 30% are men. And the men of the 70 are either dead, they've been killed in the war, or they're working, or they just don't want to come to church. They don't want to come hear about Christ. So the women are flocking in. We have a meeting on a Wednesday for women encountering Christ. I spoke one day. I was invited to speak to the women. There are women who speak to them. There are women who are dedicated to that kind of work. And I spent two hours speaking to them about the love of God as our Father. Most of them were crying in tears. And later I asked, what is going on? And they said, we hated our Father. Our Father abused us. We never thought of God as a Father. Our, uh, God was a dictator. We were afraid to come in His presence. And you spoke about him being love. And that touched our hearts. And many of them came to Christ. They go home and they tell their husbands. And their husbands say, no, you can't go to a Christian uh, uh, meeting. No, they, some of them get persecuted. One woman was beaten every day that she came back from meetings. And she insisted on coming. But we are seeing a trend where the women are leading their husbands to Christ. When they see the, what happened to them, their lives were transformed. One of these stories I told earlier, and because it's a unique story, I'll tell it to you also. I was uh, teaching uh, at a discipleship conference. Everyone who comes to Christ is registered. We register their name and we put them in a discipleship class. We have three levels of discipleship. When they graduate from three levels, we take them to a weekend conference to establish them, graduate them, and celebrate with them. We're 120 people last September at this conference, and every September we have one of these conferences to harvest all those who have come to Christ in the 12 months before. A young 12-year-old girl came to me and said, would you, Pastor George, pray for my dad, because we're afraid Mom and I are in this conference, and her mother came and joined us. And uh, he's angry with us. We're afraid he's going to beat us. And so I prayed for him. A week later, Tamam is her name, 12-year-old, covered. Her mother is also covered. Uh, they both love Jesus. She said to me, Pastor George, God answered your prayer. I said, what prayer? I had forgotten because it was a week. And I had met a lot of people in that week. She said, you prayed that my dad would not persecute us for being three days away at a Christian conference. So what happened? Said He asked us, what happened to you in these three days? What did you learn? So my mother and I started sharing with him what you taught us at this conference. And he said, I want to be like you. He started coming to the center. That was last September. And in October, he received Christ. I never met him until Christmas. We had a Christmas celebration, and I stood up to preach a Christmas message, and I looked in the church, and there was a, a whole pew of a man and his wife and nine children. That was him. 
He brought his whole family with him. At the end of the service, I went to him and I shook his hand. I had heard from his daughter and wife that he had become a Christian. And I said, tell me your story. He said, we were in Aleppo. We had a farm. We were well-to-do. We had animals and trees and vegetables. We were selling our products. We were doing well. We lost everything. It was ISIS that came and destroyed our home. And we became refugees, and we rented a one-bedroom, and we we're all sleeping. And I visited their home just uh, two months ago when I was there. Very, very humble situation. He said, everything we lost, we were frustrated. I was angry, and I was angry that my, my wife and daughter became Christians until they came down from the mountain, and I saw their face like the sun, their face was shining with brightness. And I said, something happened to these women. And he asked them, he said, at that time I decided I'm not going to resist them, persecute them anymore. I began to come to the meetings. Now I know Jesus and I lost everything, but I gained Jesus who's worth everything. Hallelujah. Brothers and sisters, my time is way past up, and you're getting antsy, and you want to go and get my book. <laughs> I know that. I have a stack of signed copies. As I said, the signature is worth a thousand, but you can rip the signature out or you'd get it free. <clears throat> but I just want to challenge you, brothers and sisters. Don't meet a Muslim and just avoid them, walk away from them. I'm going to teach you a simple word, which is a key to a relationship. It's two letters, H and I. How does that go? How, do you, how does it sound? Hi. Let's do it together. One, two, three. So now you are a trained evangelist. <laughs> you can go and meet any Muslim, and you say hi to them, my name is so-and-so, what is your name, where are you from, welcome to America, what can we do to welcome you, can we have you over, can we have Starbucks coffee on my tab, you can, you can charge me, I'll give you my credit card. Do something, don't ignore them, this I call divine appointments. Everywhere I go, I see divine appointments, and I can spend hours telling you of the stories of people I've met on airplanes and buses where I said hi to them and began a conversation, and I'm still involved with them. Hey, uh, I have a visitor here. What's her name? Hanin. Are you here, Hanin? Shout yes. She's not here. <laughs> I met Han where are you, Hanin? Stop there, Hanin. I was on vacation with my wife in Alaska when her husband, Jasper, called me and said, can I meet with you? I did not know anything about him. His parents are from Grand Rapids, and someone told him about that I'm in Alaska. I met with them. And Hanin, I invited her to a conference that was September 2, I remember that, Hanin, three years ago. 
And on September five, 7, five days later, she was in Pennsylvania attending this conference for Muslim converts. There she received Christ. She is now here. <clears throat> I want to make you famous, Hanin. <laughs> so you meet people everywhere and they come to Christ. In Dearborn, where I came yesterday, so I can speak with you, and I'm rushing back this afternoon, there are 35 Muslim converts at this Cubs to Lions conference. Cubs to Lions. We train them to be strong in faith and to walk with God. There are 35 from 19 nationalities, including Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Lebanon, Afghanistan, uh, I don't remember all of it today. And, and I see them everywhere. God is working all over the world. This is an amazing time when Muslims in the millions are leaving Islam because they're disgusted with Islam. I am disgusted with Islam. But many of them are flocking into the kingdom. And the only those who are flocking in the kingdoms are those who are in touch with someone like you. So go out. Be salt and be light. And bring them to the knowledge of Jesus. There's no knowledge above his knowledge. There's no salvation except in his name. And there's no hope except through Jesus Christ. Let's pray.